Chapter Twenty Five of Babbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Twenty Five. One. He awoke to stretch cheerfully as he listened to the sparrows, then to remember that everything was wrong, that he was determined to go astray and not in the least enjoying the process. Why he wondered, should he be in rebellion? What was it all about? Why not be sensible, stop all this idiotic running around, and enjoy himself with his family, his business, the fellows at the club? What was he getting out of rebellion? Misery and shame? The shame of being treated as an offensive small boy by a ragamuffin like Ida Putnick? And yet, always he came back to, and yet, whatever the misery, he could not regain contentment with a world which once doubted, became absurd. Only, he assured himself, he was through with chasing after girls. By noontime, he was not so sure even of that, if in Miss McGowan, Louetta Swanson, and Ida he had failed to find the lady kind and lovely, it did not prove that she did not exist. He was haunted by the ancient thought that somewhere must exist the not impossible she who would understand him, value him, and make him happy. 2. Mrs. Babbitt returned in August. On her previous absences he had missed her reassuring buzz, and her arrival he had made a feat. Now, though he dared not hurt her by letting a hint of it appear in his letters, he was sorry that she was coming before he had found himself, and he was embarrassed by the need of meeting her by an looking joyful. He loitered down to the station, he studied the summer resort posters, lest he have to speak to acquaintances and expose his uneasiness. But he was well trained. When the train clanked in, he was out on a cement platform, peering into the chair-cars, and as he saw her in the line of passengers moving toward the vestibule, he waved his hat. At the door he embraced her and announced, well, 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 by golly, you look fine, you look fine. Then he was aware of Tinka. Here was something, this child, with her absurd little nose and lively eyes, that loved him, believed him great, and as he clasped her, lifted and held her till she squealed, he was for the moment come back to his old steady self. Tinka sat beside him in the car, with one hand on the steering wheel, pretending to help him drive, and he shouted back to his wife, "'I'll bet the kid will be the best chauffeur in the family. She holds the wheel like an old professional.' All the while he was dreading the moment when he would be alone with his wife and she would patiently expect him to be ardent. 3. There was about the house an unofficial theory that he was to take his vacation alone to spend a week or ten days in Catawaba. But he was nagged by the memory that a year ago he had been with Paul in Maine. He saw himself returning, finding peace there, and the presence of Paul in a life primitive and heroic. Like a shock came the thought that he actually could go, only he couldn't really. He couldn't leave his business, and Myra would think it sort of funny his going away off there alone. Of course, he decided to do whatever he damn pleased from now on, but still go way off to Maine. 
he went after lengthy meditations. With his wife, since it was inconceivable to explain that he was going to seek Paul's spirit in the wilderness, he frugally employed the lie prepared over a year ago and scarcely used it at all. He said that he had to see a man in New York on business. He could not have explained even to himself why he withdrew from the bank several hundred more dollars than he needed, nor why he kissed Tinka so tenderly and cried, "'God bless you, baby!' From the train he waved to her till she was but a scarlet spot beside the brown, bulkier presence of Mrs. Babbitt, at the end of a steel and cement aisle, ending in vast barred gates. With melancholy he looked back at the last suburb of Zenith. All the way north he pictured the main guides, simple and strong and daring, jolly as they played stud-poker in their unsealed jack, wise in woodcraft as they tramped the forest and shot the rapids. He particularly remembered Joe Paradise, half Yankee, half Indian. If he could but take up a backwoods claim with a man like Joe, work hard with his hands, be free and noisy in a flannel shirt, and never come back to this dull decency. Or like a trapper in a northern Canada movie, plunge through the forest, make camp in the Rockies, a grim and wordless caveman. Why not? He could do it. There'd be enough money at home for the family to live on till Verona was married and Ted self-supporting. Old Henry T. would look out for them. Honestly, why not really live? He longed for it, admitted that he longed for it, then almost believed that he was going to do it. Whenever common sense snorted, Nonsense! Folks don't run away from decent families and partners. Just simply don't do it. That's all. Then Babbitt answered pleadingly, well, it wouldn't take any more nerve than for Paul to go to jail, and, Lord, how I'd like to do it. Moccasins, six-gun, frontier-town gamblers sleep under the stores. Be a regular man, with the he-men like Joe Paradise. Gosh! So he came to Maine again, stood on the wharf before the camp hotel, again spat heroically into the delicate and shivering water. While the pines rustled, mountains glowed, and a trout leaped and fell in a sliding circle. He hurried to the guy-shack, as to his real home, his real friends, long missed. They would be glad to see him. They would stand up and shout, Why, here's Mr. Babbitt. He ain't one of these ordinary sports. He's a real guy. In their boarded and rather littered cabin, the guides sat about the greasy table playing stud poker with greasy cards. Half a dozen wrinkled men in old trousers and easy felt hats. They glanced up and nodded. Joe Paradise, a swart, aging man with a big mustache, grunted, "'How do? Back again?' Silence except for the clatter of chips. Babbitt stood beside them, very lonely. He hinted after a period of highly concentrated playing, "'Yes, I might take a hand, Joe.' "'Sure. Sit in. How many chips do you want?' "'Let's see. You were here with your wife last year, weren't you?' said Joe Paradise. That was all of Babbitt's welcome to the old home. He played for half an hour before he spoke again. His head was reeking with the smoke of pipes and cheap cigars, and he was weary of pears and four-flushes, resentful of the way in which they ignored him. He flung at Joe. Working now? Nope. Like to guide me for a few days? Well, just soon I ain't engaged till next week. Only thus did Joe recognize the friendship Babbitt was offering him. Babbitt paid up his losses and left the shack rather childishly. 
Joe raised his head from the coils of smoke like a seal rising from surf, grunted, I'll come around tomorrow, and dived down to his three aces. Neither in the voiceless cabin, fragrant with planks of new-cut pine, nor along the lake, nor 